From KCRW, this is Greater LA. I'm Steve Chiatakis with the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Jermaine, what did you get on today's math test? At a theater in historic Filipino town, actors and puppeteers are rehearsing a musical. The show is called For the Love of the Glove. It's a very, very unauthorized biography of Michael Jackson. Is it good enough for the Jacksons? It presents the story of Jackson's life from the perspective of his famous sequined glove. Oh, did I mention that the glove is an alien from outer space? If this story sounds familiar, it's because it's not the premiere of the musical. The show first opened back in February of 2020. And just as the show started to generate buzz, the world, as you know, went on lockdown and theaters in L.A. went dark. Well, reporter David Weinberg has the story of how this theater production is now making its comeback, but in a changed world. And just a warning, some of the topics in this story may not be appropriate for young listeners. Several weeks into the 2020 debut run of For the Love of the Glove, the cast and crew were feeling great. The premise of the show is that Michael Jackson and his brothers discover several glove-shaped aliens one day. And these extraterrestrials have special powers. When they feed on the blood of a virgin, that person suddenly has a magnificent singing voice. Then let us drink all your blood. The aliens convince the Jackson brothers to let them drink their blood. And just like that, the Jackson Five are born. The performances were selling out, and the show started to get attention from the national news media. People were literally flying across the country to see our show. This is Julian Nitzberg, the writer and director of For the Love of the Glove. We start hearing about this thing called the coronavirus. And everyone says to me, we're only closing for three months. And I'm like the pessimist of the group. I'm like, I think it's going to be six months we're closed for. (laughs) And they're just like, you're crazy, Julian. It's never going to last six months. The last performance before lockdown happened on March 8th of 2020. And it was unclear if the show would ever reopen. Because we hadn't budgeted for a three-year closing and recasting and re-rehearsing because you have to pay people to rehearse. There was another complicating factor in the reopening of the show. In early 2020, a new law, AB5, went into effect. Before AB5, much of the cast and crew of these small theater productions made less than minimum wage. But after... Whether you're the spotlight operator or the actor, whether you're union or non-union, everybody's at the minimum wage of $16 an hour. Betsy Zyko is a producer on For the Love of the Glove. She says one of the consequences of this new law is the end of relatively cheap tickets for small theater productions. A general ticket to For the Love of the Glove in 2020 would have cost you $50. Now it's 60 And audiences have to learn that, yep, if these things are going to change, and it's right to pay people, that the ticket prices are going to go up. The AB5 has been completely and utterly horrific and jarring and awful. This is Nicole Monet, executive director of the Courage Ensemble. We started in 2009, and we are Los Angeles's only pay-what-you-want theater company. Nicole isn't opposed to paying actors more, but the shows she puts on were not profitable, even when actors made less than minimum wage. And profits were never the goal. They put on these shows for the experience. 
why not work with a small theater company who can't pay you as much because it's something you want to do and maybe have the time to do? Small theaters are figuring out how to deal with these added costs. Besides raising ticket prices, For the Love of the Glove also raised outside money. And the audiences that come to this show will be seeing a different version than what debuted before the pandemic. Not just for financial reasons. Over this time, I totally rethought the whole show and was able to rewrite it. And what's really weird and amazing is all our actors came back and they've all grown as performers in this way that I can't quite comprehend. Like they're bringing so many more levels to every performance. And I'm just like, did the darkness of coronavirus change them? Did they just become better actors? Was the emotional roller coaster of corona like something that brought them new depth? I think it's safe to say that all of us went through some trials and tribulations over the last three years. Some of us lost jobs, lost loved ones, watched our kids struggle in isolation, trying to learn on computers instead of classrooms. It's been rough. I spent a lot of 2020 just hurting, grieving this show, wondering if theater would be dead. This is Tracy Dory. He plays Jermaine Jackson in the show. And like a lot of us, he struggled during the pandemic. I mean, in 2020, my grandfather died. Friends of mine died. A little before that, an old mentor died. And it was really hard, but it really made me want to continue to spend time with the people that I care about. So to see everyone here, it's a relief. I'm grateful for their presence to be among these talented individuals making art again. Eric B. Anthony, who plays Michael Jackson, echoed what Tracy told me. He also felt like he was returning to this performance as a different person than he was before the pandemic. Having a new mind when it comes to racial inequality and what it means to be a Black person in this country. In May of 2020, the killing of George Floyd sparked a wave of protests around the world and brought attention to racial injustice in America. And coming back to the show after all that changed the way Eric felt about parts of the musical. For instance, one song called What a Delight is about the relationship between Michael Jackson, who was raised Jehovah's Witness in real life, and Donny Osmond, who was raised Mormon. What a delight, what a sight when you become white. In the song, Donny tells Michael that he will become white after death if he converts to Mormonism which is a reference to a Mormon interpretation of the story of Cain and Abel that says that black people are cursed. Or as Mormon prophet Brigham Young put it, some classes of the human family are black, uncouth, and seemingly deprived of nearly all the blessings of intelligence that are bestowed upon mankind. Isn't this fun? No longer blasphemously black And a beacon of light Policemen won't shoot you They'll be quite polite So the song is about what a delight it'll be when Michael turns white, because all of a sudden there'll be this excess, there'll be police being nice to me because I'm white, and so then I won't have to worry about them shooting me. And how sad that that is true, you know, that you can be a white person and shoot up a whole church, and then the police will walk you to get a hamburger. But you could be a black person asking for help and end up dead. Of Cain, my skin will indict. 
What a delight when I become white. There are several moments in the show that Eric felt differently about after the pandemic. Just really grappling with some things in the script that I was like, well, how do I really feel about this? How, how, how do I want people to think they should feel about this? Like, let's not just laugh about these things that I think I was like, okay with people laughing about before. Eric also suffered his own personal tragedies during the pandemic, including two separate bike accidents in 2021. It was the first day of Black History Month. I was feeling super Black and super proud. And I was riding down Vermont and Beverly and hit a ditch and flew off my bike and hit the ground as hard as I possibly could and broke my collarbone. And the second time, I was riding my bike and hit a speed hump, ended up tearing my AC joint of my left shoulder. Eric had two surgeries to repair the damage to his body. His performance in For the Love of the Glove is physically demanding, between the dancing and the intricate puppet work. But after the rehab and physical therapy, he was healthy enough to return to the stage. And he felt like a new person. I mean, literally, physically new in the sense of having these surgeries and having reconstructed body parts. It's rare to get a hard reset in life. But at least in this one instance, the cast and crew of For the Love of the Glove got that. A chance to step back and rethink their roles. An opportunity to cut out a few jokes and add a few more serious moments, dig a little deeper into some of the big issues, and ultimately, a chance to get back up on stage and perform again for a live audience. So I'm really excited to share it with my family, specifically my mom and my sister, because they are my two most favorite and most important people in the world. So I think it'll be a gift and just a joy to share this crazy version of Michael Jackson with them. And also... I'm excited to see what happens this time. For the Love of the Glove is now playing a 12-show run at the Carl Sagan and Andrewian Theater in historic Filipino town and closes on April 1st. For KCRW, I'm David Weinberg. Well, as you just heard, some theaters are finding a way back after the pandemic, but that's not the case for everyone. Gardena Cinema opened in 1946. And that year, you could have caught The Big Sleep on their big screen or the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. To my big brother, George, the richest man in town. (laughs) 30 years later, the Kim family bought the theater, and they've been running it ever since. But COVID and changing movie-watching habits and the sheer size of the place, it has 800 seats mean that change is on the horizon for one of the last family-owned single-screen theaters in Southern California. With us to talk about those big changes is owner Judy Kim, who's on the line. Welcome, Judy. Thank you so much. Nice to speak to you over the phone. Your family has owned Gardena Cinema since 1976. Describe it for us. Maybe, you know, someone who hasn't been to one of these grand old theaters, talk about it a little bit. It's a... Standalone, old-fashioned, vintage, single-screen movie theater that you might find in a small town in middle America, but very rarely would you find something like this in a major metropolitan area because they've all been priced out of the neighborhood. So most of the time they tear them down and build something that's a little more profitable and might get a better return on your investment. But um, my parents kept the Gardena Cinema 
intact and they never upgraded it to, you know, uh, recliner seats and all the bling bling of, you know, what you see at the movie theaters today because, number one, it was very expensive to do that and they could never afford to do it. But by keeping it intact, it's become very vintage now. So it's uh, kind of like a museum now. It's a museum, but you're still showing movies, right? We are still a first-run movie theater. We've been a first-run movie theater since 1996, and um, we'll be opening Scream Part 6 on Friday, March 10. So we'll have a showing at 5.15 p.m. and a showing at 8 o'clock p.m. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, I do uh, uh, an earlier showing at 2.30 in addition to the 5.15 and 8 o'clock show. So you're trying to find different ways to utilize the theater, but also to, to at least keep some income coming in. But it's really hard and maybe not sustainable. Absolutely. That's why they don't exist anymore. Isn't that correct? The only way that, that single screen movie theaters can exist now is if they are financed by a large corporation that has deeper pockets than I do, or if it basically becomes a nonprofit organization. Well, it's like Quentin Tarantino, like buying the Vista in Silver Lake, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the new Beverly Cinema. Is this something that you wanted to do? Did you choose it or did it choose you? <laughs> um, it chose me. That's definitely for sure. I spent most of my youth running away from it. And I went as far away from it as I possibly could without leaving the country. And that meant that I went to college on the East Coast and said, goodbye, I'm leaving and I'm going to start my life on the East Coast. And I really had every intention of moving to New York and becoming a big Broadway producer or something. But that didn't happen because at some point I had graduated from college and I was I went down to Washington, D.C. to work in regional theater at the arena stage. And my parents told me that I needed to come back home. Ultimately, I came to embrace the fact that my parents worked so hard to build this business and I thought it's my duty to protect it so they don't lose it. And it was their only asset for their retirement. Unfortunately, my mother uh, was diagnosed with cancer in 2016 and she oh, died in sorry. 2022. It's I'm okay. So sorry. She had a good fight, you know, she had, she fought for six years, but you know, these things happen. You plan for the future and sometimes the future is not what you planned and you have to deal with it. And so I'm at this point right now where I have this movie theater that I inherited from my mother. It was her dream, to be honest. She always loved the movie theater and she loved our patrons. She's a really social butterfly and she loved talking to people and meeting new people and seeing the neighborhood people. And she really felt like she was doing a service to the community by providing a place where they could enjoy a movie for a few hours with their family and create some memories. And um, she's she watched four generations of families, of kids, uh, come through our doors. So... When she passed away, I was very touched because there were a lot of people that reached out to me and told me how much um, 
my mother uh, meant to them because she was part of their youth and um, they enjoyed the fact that my mom knew so much about their grandparents or their mom or their dad and what troublemakers they were. And <laughs> so yeah. all of these things were wonderful to see um, from the people that knew her. And so it was a nice legacy that she left. All of those ways to try and keep the theater, the creative things that y'all did, you know, over the course of owning the theater. And now it's just, it's too much. And your dad has decided to sell, right? The family, your family. Yeah. I mean, my father feels like it. it is now we're at a point in our lives where we should convert the asset into cash and then use that cash to enjoy the rest of our lives because he doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. So there's really no reason for us to continue hanging on to the movie theater uh, because when we die, we can't take it with us. Judy, I want to, I want to wish you and your family the, the, the best of luck going forward. The Gardena cinema for sale now and, you know, you, you do what you can, right? You do what you can to um, keep going. And it's been a lot for you. And I, I just thank you for, for coming on and telling your story. Judy Kim, the owner and operator of one of SoCal's last single screen theaters over at the Gardena Cinema. Judy, thanks so much and good luck to you. Thank you so much, Steve. Still to come, deaths of the unhoused in OC have nearly quadrupled in 10 years. What's going on there? What's Orange County doing about it? Gustavo Ariano's with us on the other side of this. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. You're listening to Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. Just like in L.A. County, the homeless population has sharply increased over the last decade in O.C. <music> Nearly 400 homeless people died in Orange County in 2021. A decade ago, that number was closer to 100. County supervisors voted unanimously in early February to commission a survey about Orange County's unhoused population, but activists say what's needed now isn't more data, but action. Gustavo Ariano is columnist for the LA Times and, of course, our regular here on GLA. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. Why are so many more unhoused people in OC dying? I mean, is this drug-related stuff? What, what's going on? In a word, it's fentanyl. Uh, this is, of course, a drug that has ravaged so many people in Southern California, across the United States. And in Orange County in particular, there's been so many deaths from fentanyl that at the, in 2021, there was 144 deaths related to fentanyl. In 2012, among the unhoused population, in 2012, the total amount of deaths in the unhoused population was just 103. And the total, by the way, deaths 
in 2021, the last year where we have a full accounting uh, of homeless deaths was 395. So it has increased threefold. Orange County already does have a, a point in time homeless count, just like we do here in L.A. But but this survey that the supervisors just approved is is different. What are they looking to do this time? I, I, I can't believe this is actually what's supposed to be different, but they're actually going to be talking to the people that they're counting. Seriously, that's what their big development is. And to get more people to talk about their status, how they've how they relate to the services that are available and all of that. They're giving them a $10 gift card for, for them to use for whatever. That seems to be the only real difference from uh, some of the other surveys that have been done in recent years. Is this because of the increase in deaths of the unhoused in Orange County? Is that solely the reason? So I just think just like most public officials across, especially Southern California, they're at their wits ends and they're trying to figure out what is the best way. We've tried all these things, but still the idea of like, oh, let's talk to the people themselves. That that seems very, very late in the game for Orange County to really just be emphasizing on this as their great innovation. Santa Ana, that's where the largest number of, of homeless deaths by city in the OC is in Santa Ana. Is this a city by city problem? And uh, I mean, as much as it is a county problem. No, this is what makes Orange County especially difficult for them, for the county to deal with the homeless issue, is that there are 33 cities. At least in L.A. County, of course, you have Los Angeles itself, the city, which is millions of people connected to Los Angeles County. And so there's that partnership where basically both the city and the county really take uh, the lead in trying to address the homeless issue uh, citywide. There, there seems to be some sort of consensus on that. Orange County? You have a county that historic, like the county government historically has tried to keep the issue at arm's length. And then, of course, you also have the overall thinking of all the cities in Orange County that we should just dump the problem on Santana. And Santana in the past couple of years has said, no, this is enough. We have dealt with this situation for far too long. We have accepted without our permission, by the way, the homeless population of other cities in Orange County for far too long. We're not going to stand up and fight back. Let's get back to the survey. Some activists have come out against what they're doing, the, the $10 gift card, the, the finding out why they're in the position, they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Why? Why are, why are the activists against this? Because a $10 gift card is not going to keep the rain off of your body when it rains. It's not going to provide any shade for you. The big issue that activists have right now or with it is the same issue they've had now for almost a decade at this point. There needs to be more affordable housing. There needs to be more shelters. And this is not a county that doesn't want to build more affordable housing or more shelters because this is a county who still insists that homelessness is an issue just for Santana. And, you know, I've been, gosh, I've been covering now homelessness as an issue where you have politicians and even the courts involved almost a decade now. And there's been very little movement. I mean, there's been improvements for sure, but nowhere near what needs to be done in order to make a sizable dent in the population of the unhoused in Orange County. What about the services that are available for the unhoused in OC? What, what are those like? I mean, are there services? Are Is the county doing enough? 
So there are shelters, but they're not spread across all of Orange County the way, say, they're trying to do in Los Angeles. There are uh, nonprofits, but for the most part, they're very concentrated in the cities that had the historical populations of unhoused folks. So this is something that just needs to be spread out more. And that's the other thing that activists have been pushing for. This needs to be treated as a countywide issue with all the cities involved, as opposed to the assumption that it's only in certain cities. Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the LA Times, of course, our regular here at GLA. Gustavo, thanks. Gracias. That's going to do it for us this evening. Tomorrow, a high school culinary program features a green sauce. What's it made of? Where can you find it? And yeah, it is taken off. That's tomorrow on Greater LA. Share a story idea, share your thoughts, share your ears at the website, kcrw.com slash GLA. And we'll share the podcast, too, if you go there. We'd love to be in your podcast lineup. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Sonia Guys, John Meek, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Stark, and Christian Bordall all had hands in this episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thanks for your time and your ear. Have a great night. <laughs>